sermon text today comes from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. Romans 12, 14 through 21. I will begin reading um, in verse 1 of chapter 12, uh, which can be found on page 947 in the Pew Bibles. I will read Romans 12, 1 through 21. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service and our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, we can forget in our relatively comfortable lives the suffering of saints around the world. If you use Operation World, you know today that One of the things we were to pray for is Kashmir, that disputed area in India and Pakistan, part of India, but it's disputed. Well, there's people who belong to Islam there and Hindus, but Christians are persecuted there. It's tough to be a Christian there, living in such a culture. John mentioned in his prayer this morning what is happening in Nigeria. It's been happening for some time. According to one news report, since last Sunday, 100 Nigerian Christians have been murdered. It's a hundred, hundred people, husbands, wives, parents, children, brothers and sisters, 
put to death for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. People made in the image of God, people who, like us in this room, at least I hope it's true of all of us in this room, love Jesus Christ, put to death for their devotion to Jesus. Some of the reports coming out from there are somewhat murky. There's some reports of Christians striking back. There, there's, there were reports of a mosque burning. We don't know the details, but if, but if that's what's happening, we understand that, don't we? That's why we have the admonition we have in this passage. Don't take revenge. Don't strike back. But we understand why it's happening. But it isn't. If it is happening, it isn't the way of Jesus. It isn't the way of the cross. We're called not to strike back. I read another story in Voice of the Martyrs of Camus Bunchan, a Christian from Laos. He was imprisoned for 13 years. At times he was handcuffed. He had his feet in stocks. Sometimes food and water were denied him. He said, I love this, what was the hardest thing for him? He said, the hardest thing is when they took away my Bible. That was the hardest thing for him in those 13 years. He says about his imprisonment, I don't feel regret, but I give thanks to the Lord. I knew that God was with me. And I knew what he had done for me on the cross. It is greater than what I have been through in prison. So we're reminded by such stories of the suffering of the saints, suffering that's taking place all over the world. We're reminded to pray, aren't we, for our brothers and our sisters, to pray for our friends whom we haven't met, but they are our friends, aren't they, who are undergoing such things. Well, let's look at this text today, which is about more than persecution, but it is about a number of practical truths for us as Christians, and I'm just going to lift out three today. First, in verse 15 and the first part of verse 16, we're to sympathize with brothers and sisters. Secondly, in verse 16b, we're to forsake pride. And then thirdly, we're to love our enemies. So let's, let's look at these one at a time, beginning with the admonition to sympathize with brothers and sisters. We read there, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. I I actually want to pick up the second command first. Weep with those who weep. Job, you know, read Job 30 sometime and 31, especially Job 30. Job was a good example of this. He said in Job chapter 30, verse 25, Have I not wept for those in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? That's one reason Job's suffering was undeserved, his righteousness. We think of Jesus weeping at the death of Lazarus. Love means participating in the sorrows of others, doesn't it? When they grieve, we grieve with them. Diane's mom died when she was 22 years old, one year after we were married, very suddenly. She had an aneurysm and died, and struck so hard by that. But we'll never forget when we went back to my house, and my mom cried with 
Diane, and their souls were bounded together in that moment. As Diane said, she felt like she had a second mom in that situation, as my mom grieved with her in her grief. We're also to rejoice with those who rejoice. In Luke chapter 1, verse 58, when Zechariah and Elizabeth have John, the neighbors and friends get together and they rejoice. We have many opportunities to do that at Clifton, don't we? Many opportunities to rejoice with those whom God has given children. We think even of the gins this week. But it's hard to stop that list, isn't it, of rejoicing that we have at Clifton. Chrysostom, the great Christian preacher of the 4th century, asked an interesting question. Remember, I reversed the order. He said, why does Paul put the command to rejoice with those who rejoice before the command to grieve with those who grieve? His answer, which I thought was insightful, is that it's harder to rejoice with those who rejoice than it is to grieve with those who grieve. Chrysostom said we more naturally grieve with those who are in suffering. But it's harder to rejoice with those who rejoice because we're prone to jealousy and to envy. We may secretly wish that the person who is rejoicing weren't blessed in such a way. We might even wish that something bad happened to them instead. Or we might just think, why wasn't I blessed with that? Why was that person blessed? Why was I left out? Whatever the reason is, if sin is uncovered in our hearts, we are to confess it before God and repent of it and ask Him to cleanse us from unholy, jealous, and envious emotions. May He so work that we are full of joy when others are blessed, when others are recognized and honored and noticed. May we be full of joy. May we especially pray that regarding the ministries of others. May we pray that God would bless their ministries and bring fruit so that His name is honored. May we not live for our honor and our advancement, but for the honor and the advance of the gospel. And may we be full of joy when other people and ministries are noticed. The best sports team is the sports team that works together, isn't it? Where they they take joy in one another. Whatever you thought about the NBA finals, one thing Dwayne Wade learned in these finals is... At least this year, it's LeBron's team. It's LeBron's team. He's, he's going to lead us to victory. And that's not, that wasn't easy for him. He, he isn't noticed in the same way he was before. But he gave that up. He let LeBron lead the team to victory. And it worked. It wasn't just about individual stars. They won because they played as a team. That fits very well with the next admonition. Live in harmony with one another. This isn't hard to understand, is it? There, there's, no great, there's no great interpretive dispute here. We all know what this means. We're to be unified and not divisive. Usually division starts with our tongues, with gossip, 
and bad speech about others. Often, it can be shared even as a prayer request or by saying that we're concerned about a situation. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Are you covering offenses? Are you spreading them? Love covers offenses. Proverbs 6, verses 16 and 19 says, There's six things the Lord hates. And the last one is the one who sows discord among brothers. The Lord hates that if we sow discord in the body. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So are you a peacemaker? Are you fomenting the unity of the church? It's better, isn't it? It's more of God when we agree together, when we have harmony one with another. That brings me to the second main point in the text. Verse 16, forsake pride. Paul says, don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So we get, we have three commands again, as we did before. I think right here we should remind ourselves of the gospel as we think of these commands. One thing is true of all of us. We want to brag about ourselves. We want to think of ourselves as good. No matter how long you've been a Christian, you still face that temptation. I face it. You face it. It can be comforting to read the paper and think of the evil others do. For we can say things like, I may not be perfect, but I'd, I'd, I would never abuse children. I, I, would never, I would never murder anyone. But God's word undermines our pride. It uncovers our lies and declares that we are transgressors. God's word announces that we will be judged for our sin on the last day. God is utterly holy and he hates evil. And if you're a non-believer, if you don't repent of your sin, you'll be judged on that final day. So is there any way we can stand on that last day before God? Can we, is there any way we can avoid the final judgment? And the Bible says we, can, we can't avoid it by becoming better persons. We'll never be good enough to meet God's standard. We can only avoid it by trusting in Jesus Christ, by trusting in what he's done for us. The punishment we deserved he took upon himself so that if we trust in him and believe in him, and rest in him. We're saved. Actually, all these admonitions flow out of knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, the one who's rescued us from our sin. How does that relate to pride? We don't enter the gates of heaven because of anything we do. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. So if you're a visitor, look around you at this group. What do you think of this group? This is a collection of sinners Saved by grace. You belong in this assembly. You belong with us if you trust in Jesus as your Savior. So we, we, we have no reason to brag. We humbly give thanks to God for saving us and rescuing us. We're not remarkable people. We're very ordinary people. We're very sinful people. So Paul's command makes sense. Don't be haughty. Don't be proud. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? 
And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? There's nothing we have that we haven't received from God. Everything we have is a gift. Paul also says, associate with the lowly. Don't be proud. Treat every person with respect and honor and dignity. Francis Schaeffer was a great example here. One of the reasons God used Schaeffer so much, it wasn't just his intellect, it was his love and concern for people. He wrote a book titled, No Little People. I love the title of that book. No Little People. No one is little before God. Everyone matters. One of the features of the Gospel of Luke is the focus upon women who are disregarded generally in the ancient world, the poor, tax collectors, sinners, the lowly of this world. I mean, you get a feeling, you know, that's a particular in Luke, you get a feeling about Luke's interests, don't you? But more important, it shows us Jesus. Jesus cares for those who aren't important in the eyes of the world. If Jesus had ministered in India, he would have cared for and ministered to the untouchables. He would have ministered to the lowest caste. Or I think of, I think of today in our body, I think of Joni Williams, who ministers at Jefferson Street Mission. I hear how she treats the homeless there. She treats them as she does her family, with concern and care, with no-nonsense love. Do we attend to and care for the needs of those who aren't important in the eyes of the world? If you're falling into the sin, you've forgotten the gospel, haven't you? Remember the gospel. God associates with the lowly, and so should we. Who does God want you to reach out to in our body? Do you have, do you have eyes for those who are not noticed and not loved? Finally, we read here, never be wise in your own sight. Beware of a kind of pride that puts too much emphasis on our own wisdom. Are you starting, I face this temptation, are you starting to trust too much your own intuitions and your own judgments? Psalm 131 says, My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. David, who said that, was a king. And he said, I don't concern myself with great matters because I'm not a great person. The Lord said to Baruch in Jeremiah chapter 45, verse 5. This is Baruch's temptation. Is it yours? Should you then seek great things for yourself? And the Lord says, don't seek them. Don't seek them, Baruch. Don't seek great things for yourself. Let us ask the Lord to give us humility so that we are learners. We read in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 12, Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for them. There's no hope for a person like this because they can't learn. 
Because they think they know. Finally, third point. Love your enemies. We read in verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Again, this isn't hard to understand, is it? We, we, we understand this verse very well. It's just hard to do. Paul reflects here the teaching of Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Were there Old Testament saints who lived this way? Job chapter 31, verses 29 and 30, Job says he did not rejoice at the ruin of him who hated me or exulted when evil overtook him. I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. Job lived this way. Can you think of anyone right now who you dislike? Can you think of anyone who has mistreated you? Is there some pain in your life from how someone has treated you that comes to your mind? Are you asking God to bless them and to lift them up and to give them joy? Verse 17 says the same thing, doesn't it? Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Proverbs 24, 29 says, Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. I had a college roommate who would say, when the, uh, the other roommate threatened to bother him, he'd said, if you do that to me, I'll pay you back ten times worse. It was usually pretty effective. But it's not biblical, is it? Even people in the world recognize it's virtuous to refrain from doing evil. We remember the words of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we remember Stephen when he was punished and put to death, that he asked God not to hold their sin against them. I thought when I was preparing the sermon, I thought of the story of Corey Tenboom. She was imprisoned in the Nazi war camp. She saw her sister. They were together in the war camp. She saw her sister Betsy die in that camp. And she tells a story after her release of meeting one of uh, the prison guards. And this is a little bit long, but I think the story is worth reading to you. So I want you to hear... Corey Ten Boom's story of meeting this prison guard, a prison guard was, who was in the very camp where she was put to death. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. And I saw him working his way forward. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, 
rib sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I who sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death? simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears into my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. We're reminded by this story that we must forgive and that only the grace of God can enable us to forgive. Verse 18 is a very realistic verse. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We are to do everything possible to be at peace with others. There's an urgency to it, isn't there? If you're offering a sacrifice, Jesus says, and remember that someone has something against you, leave your offering and go to that person. So I ask you today, is there such a person in your life that you're not reconciled to? Have you done everything in your power to be reconciled to that person? Is there someone you need to speak to by phone today or in person, even in this room? that God is calling on you to speak to them and do whatever is in your power to be in the right before them? 
Now, he says, if possible, doesn't he? So there's a recognition that sometimes when we go to other people and confess our sins and our weaknesses, sometimes they don't forgive us. And we're not to feel guilty in such situations, are we? We are to leave that person to God. Remember that it's the other person. If you've done everything you can, remember it's the other person who is sinning by not being reconciled to you. Now now the ball is in their court. I remember a few years back, the elders at the time helped me work through this. I uh, got an email from a church member in California. He asked me about uh, a particular church, and he described the church to me a little bit. And um, I wrote him rather quickly, too quickly, as I often do. And I wrote him, and I said, I would just leave that church. That church is legalistic. I didn't think a thing of it out of, you know, many emails every day. So I just quickly dashed off that email. But maybe, I don't know, two months later, suddenly I got this huge packet in the mail signed by pastors in the church and doctors and lawyers. And uh, they called, apparently this guy had taken the email and read it in the church body, what I said. <laughs> so, and, and this letter called upon me to apologize I mean, I was just stunned to get this huge packet of 30 pages from an email I'd forgotten I'd even written. My natural response when I got the email, I just immediately, when I got home, I just went to my computer and I started typing out an apology. You know, I thought, you know, that was wrong and what I did. But honestly, as I sat there, I thought, wait a minute. I don't think actually what I wrote was wrong there. So we started going back and forth. As I said, the elders helped me with this at the time. And I did confess. Look, I I had confessed this. I wish I would have said in the email, assuming that what you say is correct about the church, because it's your perspective, if you rightly represent the church, then you should leave it. I should have put that in the email. I didn't know the situation entirely. The church, however, so I said that to the church, and I said, I apologize for that. But the church, however, wasn't happy with that. The church, the church wanted me to say, no, under, there are no circumstances in which you should tell someone what they should do regarding our church because you don't know it. Now, look, I understand that, but I didn't agree. I still don't agree. So we were stuck, right? We were stuck. As far as I could, I tried to make peace. But at the end of the day, we disagreed, and we just had to live there. And, and have hearts open to one another to uh, love one another if there'd be any further progress. There hasn't been any. You know, so sometimes it's just that way, isn't it? When it says, as far as is possible to make peace, it has to be according to our conscience and what we think the right thing to do is. Sometimes we just have to leave situations to the Lord. Well, lastly, Paul tells us not to take justice into our own hands in verses 19 and 20. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. It isn't our job to set the scales of the world right. If we're hurt and mistreated, if you don't understand this, you haven't been hurt or mistreated. 
Everything in us wants to set it right. Everything in us wants to make sure that our name is cleared. Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as ourselves. We're to show love to our enemies. How? By feeding them if they're hungry, inviting them over for dinner, giving them something to drink if they're thirsty, by praying for them, by, if possible, bringing them gifts and blessing them in practical ways. That's what the Nigerian Christians are called upon to do. That's horrific, isn't it? What's happened to these believers? How can we be free to do such things? Paul tells us one of the secrets here. Remember, God is the king of the universe. God will dispense his wrath on the last day. Vengeance is his. And by vengeance, he means justice. God will avenge those who have been persecuted. That's his job. He will punish on the last day. The coals on the head, heaping burning coals, we we give them kindness, right? But they're coals on the head if they don't repent. The coals on the head stand for what? Punishment. We heap coals on their head if... We love them and they don't repent. Our calling is to treat people with kindness and to pray and to hope that they will repent and be saved. God's job is to pour vengeance out them on them, to throw burning coals upon them on the last day. There is no evidence, I'm going to say this dogmatically, there is no evidence that the burning coals mean that people will be ashamed and embarrassed and stunned by your goodness and turn to Christ. That's a very popular interpretation. There's no evidence for that interpretation. None whatsoever. It's not hard to understand, actually. Burning coals on the head aren't a good thing, right? And you can look at the Old Testament and it's clear. Psalm 140, verse 10. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. Now, the coals on the head stand for God's vengeance. Clearly. We're being told here, treat your enemies with love, with the love of Christ. Pray that they'll repent and turn. But if they don't, vengeance. If they don't, coals. Jesus was tempted to take revenge like we are. We see in 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus was tempted to threaten and revile those who scorned him. But instead, he gave himself entirely to God. He entrusted himself to God 
It, it doesn't just say that, though, does it? It doesn't simply say he entrusted himself to God. He entrusted himself to God who judges justly. He entrusted himself to God knowing that God would make it right if they didn't repent. That's important to know, isn't it? Uh, One of my dearest friends was a missionary in a country where he was mistreated, actually, by other people in the mission. It's a complex story. But one of the things that gave him strength to endure is the final judgment. He didn't have to make it right now. How he wanted to make it right when people were criticizing him and mistreating him and spreading false rumors around him. But what gave him the strength? God would make it right on the last day. He could trust himself to God. That's what Jesus did. God judges justly. Are you being mistreated? Have you been mistreated? If you are mistreated in the future, misunderstood, that's so hard. Do you feel how hard that is? That is so hard. God will make it right. We believe in a God who judges. We believe in a final judgment. We believe everything will be made right. So verse 21 sums up what is said. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Let's pray that evil will not find a place in our soul. May the Lord keep us from bitterness and anger and gossip and hatred. May love, may love instead of revenge, fill our souls. Jesus overcame evil with good. He conquered evil through his own suffering. So as I close, I can't do this on my own. I always want to strike back when people criticize me. We can't do this on our own. We need, we need the Holy Spirit, don't we? We need the power of God. We need the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we are sometimes amazed at what you command us. In one way, it seems so self-evident. But we recognize that these commands are really impossible for us in and of ourselves. We do rejoice that they cast us anew and afresh upon you. Lord, that they cause us to remember every day that we can't and we won't live the Christian life on our own. That just like Corey Ten Boom, that we cry out to you day after day, help, help us, Lord, to do what is pleasing to you. And Lord, when we do, we, we do get the help. And we praise you because you get all the glory and praise. So we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.